0: Here's a quote by C.S. Lewis I love. C.S. Lewis says, we all want progress. I mean, I think we agree with that, right? Because we know the alternative is stagnation or going backwards. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. Let me just give you a visual in your mind of what that means. Several years ago, we were headed from here on a summer morning up to Six Flags in Arlington. Our our ministry teams, lots of times, will pick Six Flags during the summer. A lot of times they choose San Antonio, which which I love because it's closer. Uh, Sometimes they say, we've done San Antonio, we want to do Arlington, it's been a while, and because we're gonna drive to Arlington, be out in the sun and on roller coasters and, and just being tired about six o'clock when you leave and come home, we usually get a charter bus rather than asking our adults to drive up there that early in the morning for three hours and then drive back exhausted. So we'll pay, get a charter bus. So we have all loaded up on the bus and we're headed up I-35 and we've taken the exit to go towards uh, Fort Worth and now we're on uh, I-20, headed towards Six Flags. We're almost there. And what I love about the bus is I'm, since I'm not driving, I don't have to pay attention. Right? I, mean, I can talk to students or do whatever I need to do. And so I am not in the midst of looking out the window. I'm talking to people, doing things. When I do, finally, I, I look out the window and I realize, I was like, none of, none of this looks familiar. Like I've been to Six Flags as a youth minister way more times than any human being should ever have to go. And I'm like, Man, this where are we at? And I'm trying to get my bearings. And, and so I, I get up and walk to near the front of the bus because I'm waiting to see if the driver says anything. And I, and I asked the driver, I said, I, I, I don't want to be the backseat driver. You're, you're the bus driver. I'm sure you've done Six Flags a lot of times, but are we going the right direction? Well, what had happened is we discussed when we had, were on I-20 and we had exited to turn north up 360, if you're familiar with the area, to go to Six Flags, the bus driver had turned south. So now we're headed back, you know, the other direction. We're like 10 minutes down the road, I think, when I notice it. So so here's what the picture is of what C.S. Lewis is saying. If we continue on that path, we never get to Six Flags. We get back home. (laughs) That's the long way. What C.S. Lewis is saying here is if if you want progress in your spiritual life, the person who realizes that they're on the wrong road, and then turns around, like we turn that bus around to head from south back to north, is the person who is the most progressive, the person who is getting to where they need to be, and in our case, not Six Flags, but being someone who is not plastic, sooner. Last week, we talked about confession. Confession, when it comes to becoming not plastic, confession is not the finish line. Confession is the starting block. That's why we started off this, Series "The Plastics and New Life in Christ," talking about confession and admitting, because it is not the end. We don't just confess and then everything's fine and dandy. Confession is the starting block into, into getting some traction to moving closer toward Jesus is. So what goes with confession, what goes hand in hand, is where we're kind of leaning in this week. you'll hear about 11 o'clock service, is its partner, repentance. You see, you can't really have confession without repentance. One guy said, I don't remember his name, he said confession without repentance is just bragging. Confession and repentance go hand in hand. If if you have one without the other, and I'm not even sure if you can actually have repentance without confession, but if you have one without the other, you only have half of it. You have something that is not right. You have something that's not complete. So I've got a seven-year-old, and you guys might remember this. Some of you guys might actually agree with her. Um, And what I'd say to you is it's okay for us to disagree. I mean, you're wrong when it comes to this, but you might be where she is. She's a seven-year-old, and we make sandwiches, you know, in the world of a seven-year-old, there's only a certain kind, you know, certain number of sandwiches you can eat. You know, they they don't do ham sandwiches with lettuce and tomato, and you know, it's plain. Well, for me, my favorite sandwich in the world is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I could do peanut butter and jelly all day long. My seven-year-old though only does peanut butter. That's an anathema before God. There's something unholy about just peanut butter on two slices of bread and put together. The jelly is what, is what makes the sandwich. You've got to have both. And so I, I, like she and I, we have this like father-daughter argument. And I, I try to convince her, you don't just want Let me put honey on it. Let me put something on it. And she's like, no, I just want peanut butter with no crust. And I tell her, there's something wrong with you. Like, you need counseling already because you're missing out on, on the piece that goes with it. And so like peanut butter goes to jelly. Like confession and repentance go together. You can't have one without the other. And so if we finish our journey to being whole with just confession, that's where we stop week one. We will never get to where we need to be. I'll tell you if you've experienced this. Here's how you know if this is the case for you. And if this is a rhetorical question, I don't want you to raise hands, even though we want you to be authentic. You can talk about it in your small group. Have you ever felt like You're just repeating and confessing the same sin over and over and over and over again. And it feels like you're never gonna get off. It feels like you might have, I'm gonna show you a video, give you a little quick clip. You might have seen it, it went viral this week. I thought this is a picture of what some of our spiritual lives are like that have confession with no repentance. Do you see this guy that walked out to his car? Discovered the black ice? See, see, for us, the car is our goal. The car is what it means to be whole. The car is what it means to be who Jesus has us to be. But, but, but if we're on this cycle of confession, 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 the same thing over and over and over again, we're never getting traction. You see where he's headed. He's headed the opposite direction from his goal. He's never going to become real. He's going to continue being plastic because confession has to have repentance as a part of it. And repentance, I think I hit my slide. Yeah, here we go. So here, here's where we're aiming at. Repentance is a whatever it takes turnaround, 180 degrees, repentance is a whatever it takes turnaround to journey back to Jesus. Confession is agreeing with God. God, I agree that what I've done is an assault on your character, God, I agree with you that what I've done, what I've said, how I've lived, what I've thought is not consistent with your nature. God, I agree. But repentance is not just the agreement. It's turning around to say because it is inconsistent with your character and nature, I will now move away from my sin and I'm gonna move towards you. And so confession and repentance go hand in hand. The agreement and the transformation that keeps us from becoming fake like a mannequin and keeps us from becoming plastic. Does that make sense? So what we wrestle with though, we struggle with is sometimes, sometimes we confess because we're tired of the consequences. Sometimes we confess because the weight of our sin, the weight of our brokenness, the weight of that bad decision, it, it weighs down on us and we don't like that. We talked about that last week. Scientifically, if you remember that story, remember that talk about the steep hills and the long distances and science said, People have secrets. They actually see that further away and steeper. We we don't like that. And so sometimes we confess because we want to get rid of the the consequences that we're feeling. And you know what? We, we, We might actually be even genuine about that. I'm not talking about faking. We might genuinely be confessing. We might genuinely want change. But if we were honest with ourselves, what we would say we wouldn't say it publicly. We'd have to dig deep. But what we, what we would honestly confess is that while we hate the consequences and we confess them, we actually aren't fully convinced that we want that sin to die. Because we're still, even though it's got long-term consequences, we still enjoy the short-term benefit enough that we confess so that God will relieve the consequences but maybe we can just keep it around and keep enjoying the short-term benefits. And friends, that's not repentance. Repentance is a whatever-it-takes turnaround. Repentance is I'm not going back to the pig slop anymore. I've confessed and I've agreed and I'm going to move in a different direction. I want you to flip over to the book of Psalms, and we're gonna look at Psalm 51, which is one of the most famous Psalms in the collection. If you've grown up in church, you'll probably be familiar with it. There's a backstory to Psalm 51. And we're not gonna read it all, let me give you the cliff notes for it. We've got a, a guy named David. We also call him King David because he was the king of Israel, and he was one of, if not the greatest king. Of Israel, Maybe Solomon could give him a run for his money from his wisdom, but David was certainly uh, the most iconic king, the most powerful king as he led Israel, the, it, the borders of Israel reached larger than it ever had been. David is the one who the lineage of Jesus comes from and is pointed to. David is one of the key characters of the Old Testament that is probably on, on the same line as Moses. And David has been a good king, and David becomes king because of his heart after God, but David, as he goes through his kingship, begins to lose that sensitivity that he has towards God with all of the power and all of the fame and all of the accolades and all of the responsibility of leading a kingdom. David finds himself becoming further from God and moving from authenticity and a real flesh-beating heart for the Lord to a plastic spirituality. And we find a story of David as king where he's out one day on the top of his roof of his house and of the palace. And the roofs in those days were flat. So you don't imagine these like, you know, climbing up the side of shingles. He's on his flat roof, largest building in the kingdom. And he walks over to one side to look over the kingdom. And below him on a smaller house, there's a woman named Bathsheba. And she is doing what is common for that day on the rooftop she's bathing. And so David, as a man, sees this woman who we understand to be extremely beautiful, like wow, wow, wow. And David walks to the side and he's looking, he sees this naked woman bathing, and David has not sinned. David has not done anything to cause the, an, an affront towards God. He's kind of wrong place, wrong time. The correct response for David would have been like, oh man, wow, that's, I gotta, I'll go check out this side of the kingdom until she's done. But David doesn't do that. Not only does David stay for a minute, he calls to find out about Bathsheba. And he brings Bathsheba into his house, even though she's a married woman, and they end up sleeping together. She ends up getting pregnant. And then to make the twist of the story go, make the plot thicken, I guess, we find out that her husband Uriah is out fighting David's battle. So David has one of his soldiers out there, and now David has impregnated his wife. He calls Uriah into the battlefield because David has this dilemma on his hands. I've gotten another woman pregnant. She's gonna have a baby. How are they gonna explain things because her husband has not been home? Her husband's been gone for several months, and people will do the math. So he brings Uriah home thinking, well, Uriah's a husband. He's missed his wife. He'll come in. They'll sleep together. He'll go back to war. When he comes back home, she'll be pregnant, the math might be a little bit fuzzy, but, but we can make it make sense. Uriah comes back, and Uriah decides, doesn't even know what's going on, but Uriah decides not to sleep with his wife because all of his men are out in the field not sleeping with theirs. So David has, has another dilemma. So he brings Uriah into the house, into the palace, to have a celebration, gets Uriah drunk, because once Uriah is drunk, his inhibitions will go down. He'll go home, and he won't have this 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 high moral view of my soldiers, I'm with my soldiers, he'll be drunk, he's got a beautiful wife, and this is actually probably even better because he won't even remember a whole lot of it. But Uriah still doesn't go in to sleep with his wife. David's dilemma grows. So David brings Uriah in as he's about to send him back to war, has a message, he says, give this to the general of the army, it's sealed with the king's seal. Uriah takes it, goes back to war, gets to the battlefront, delivers the, King's sealed proclamation to the general. The general opens it up, and what it says is this. Put Uriah at the front of the battle, and when the battle is at its fiercest, withdraw everyone and leave Uriah, like one versus a million. Could you imagine like that general, like reading that, looking at Uriah? like Uriah's the one that brought him the message, like, so you haven't read this. You know, it's been sealed, so he knows he hasn't. David has Uriah, murdered on the battlefield. And then the good king has this widowed woman that he brings into the palace to take care of her and no big deal that she's pregnant and has a baby. And no one knows except for David, Bathsheba, and unfortunately for David, God. So God sends a man named Nathan. He's a prophet. Nathan and David are close, and Nathan goes, tells David this big story about a rich guy stealing from a poor guy, and David gets furious with the story, and David, in his response, condemns the guy who stole from the person who didn't have as much, and in David's fury, Nathan looks at him and says, hey, in this story of the guy that you've said should be in a lot of trouble, you're that man, and God knows what you've done, and God is not happy, and that is the moment that God uses to grab a hold of David's attention. And David repents. And he writes it in Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is a fantastic chapter. It's 19 verses. It's already 10 a.m. I ain't getting through 19 verses. I'm gonna let you read some of these. This might be something you read as a family, as you talk about it. We're gonna handle the first four verses this morning. Okay? But I want to highly encourage you to read and meditate upon Psalm 51 as you talk about repentance. It's fantastic. Here's the beginning of David's prayer that becomes a song. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Stop there for a second. So I want us to see a few things. We're gonna run through a couple things. Here's what I want you to see when it comes to repentance and us really doing it well. David depended on God to remove his guilt. You see that? He says, have mercy on me, God. According to you, according to your unfailing love or your steadfast love, your love that doesn't go away, and according to your great compassion, God, it's, it's about your love and your compassion that is going to blot out my transgressions. What David says is, God, in this, in, in this time of repenting and confessing, as I turn from my sin and I turn back towards you and I walk back to being whole, I walk away from being plastic, being fake, God, <coughs> I realize that it's you and only you who have the opportunity who, who are going to heal me. God, it's your love that's going to see me through this. It's your, it's your compassion, it's your mercy that's going to make this thing happen. There's nothing that I can do. In fact, David would probably tell us, if it was up to me, When I'm in charge, I end up on a rooftop looking at a naked woman and making a lot of the bad decisions. I need God to come in and complete this repentance work. Now, now, we would agree with that theologically, most of us in here, but we we don't usually practice it. We usually confess, and then our repentance is, I'm going to get right. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. You know what? I'm going to defeat that sin. If you could do it, you would have done it. But you can't do it without God. My brother, I have an older brother um, who had years, really years of alcohol and drug abuse. And so he's been sober now for eight or nine years. It's it's been a while. But I remember when he was first getting clean and he was living in Georgetown, he was going to Alcoholics Anonymous and doing that kind of regularly and going through the 12-step program and just doing well and he was getting like a three-year chip or something like that, for being three years sober. And so he invited the family. he said, "Hey, would you come to the AA meeting when I get the chip? There's going to be a, a cake to celebrate, or it's birthday, So there's some kind of cake. It's going to be like a party, and I'm going to share my story." And we were like, "Yeah, that'd be cool." So, so we all go. And he is, he's going to speak that night, but he's speaking last. There's about six people that are speaking before him. And they're all, they're all sharing their story about how they have given up alcohol and moved towards freedom. Now, I don't, I don't say this to be crude at all. But afterwards, I told him, he said, well, what do you think? He told his story, and it was great. He said, what do you think? I said, man, I'm gonna be honest with you. If I have to go to one of those things again, I might start drinking. Like, I, it was this, it was this, woe is me. My life is horrible, but I'm sober. You, you know why that is? Because they, they beat or are beating the addiction to alcohol, but they haven't found true freedom because true freedom doesn't come from acknowledging a higher power. True freedom comes from Jesus Christ doing a work in you. Now, let me say this. I am 100% for 12-step programs. 100% for AA. Regen, what we do here, is a, 12, is a 12-step program. But the difference between region or a celebrate recovery and other 12 step programs is Jesus Christ is the center of those 12 step programs. And so Jesus Christ becomes the focus of the change. Jesus becomes the change agent who uses 12 steps and who uses other people and uses accountability and uses the Word of God and uses discipleship to accomplish the change. But it's Jesus, not the program. Does that make sense? But so often we think the program where I'm going to do this and I'm going to see change. And what happens is we, we end up confessing, 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 never really fully experiencing repentance because repentance has to be a whatever it takes turnaround and whatever it takes is Jesus. David gets it. David says it's according to your unfailing love. It's according to your great compassion. That's how my transgressions are going to get blotted out. Then in verse three, he says this. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And here's what we say here. The repentance is about our rebellion against God. Now I want you to see that. When you look in verse three, he says, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Here's the verse that, that, that I used to struggle with. David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Hello, what about Bathsheba? Hey, what about Uriah? What about the soldiers that are under Uriah's command? What about your family that's probably going to catch wind of this? What about the kingdom that you've been called to lead, that the dominoes have begun to fall for you? David says, against you only have I sinned. And I used to go, man, no, David, you've missed it. But what David understood that I didn't understand when I was younger is that David's repentance was not about just a repentance from adultery and murder and lying and drunkenness. David was repenting from rebellion against God. The other things, they were just symptomatic of the root of the problem. The root of David's problem was his rebellion against God, not the things that his rebellion caused him to do. And so when David, says, David gets this, and repentance, we have to understand, is about that. Here's what that looks like in real life. I'm trying to think of how to say this best. Your sin that keeps coming back to you, and I kind of alluded to this earlier that you go, man, I hate the consequences, but I kind of like it. We have to get to the point where we hate our sin, not because of what it does to us, We don't hate our sin because of the consequences that it brings, but we hate our sin because it's an affront towards the character of God who is the holy creator and king of this universe. It's two different levels. When I hate it because of what it does to me is a lot different than when I hate it because of what it does to God. And our rebellion is, Our our attitude that says, I'm gonna live for me and I'm gonna do things that make me feel good momentarily is outright rebellion against God until we get to the point where we go, I'm not necessarily turning away from my sin. That's what happens. We go, I'm gonna turn away from my sin, which is repentance. I hate it. It's causing me problems. It makes me feel bad. I'm gonna turn away from it and run to Jesus. The the real thing isn't just, I wanna turn away from my sin. That's not the focus. The focus is, I wanna turn to Jesus I, I want to be closer to Jesus. I want to look Jesus in the face. I want to be in an intimate, deep relationship with him. I'm not turning away from my sin because the consequences. I'm turning away from my sin because it's keeping me from loving Jesus like I should. And, and the root is rebellion. And we have to begin to hate our rebellion more than anything else. Let, let me give you one more example. Let's just, let's just assume, and this may, this, this may be a difficult topic for somebody, I apologize if this is, a wound that's gonna open up. I need to use the illustration, I think, to make the point. If you're married and your spouse has an affair and with that affair comes all of the damage and all of the destruction to the family, to your sense of a man or your sense of a woman and all of the things that pile on that. If your spouse turned away from that affair and they looked at you and said, I am leaving this other person, I'm ending this affair. And you said, why? And they said, because I don't want to split half the assets and I see where this is going. Why are you leaving the affair? Because honestly, it does make it hard for me to sleep at night. I'm not getting good rest. I'm balancing two lifestyles and I get it. So I'm leaving, I'm leaving this affair because it's when, I, when I'm with her, when I'm with him, it just causes too much stress and chaos in my life. Why are you leaving him or her? Well, I'm leaving because their spouse found out and they want to kill me. I'm out, I'm leaving. As the other spouse that the affront has been committed towards, and you hear, I'm coming back home because I don't want to divide assets. Are you like, yes, come on in? No. Repentance would look more like this. I want to come home. Because I've realized that I have screwed everything up. And even though the consequences are there, what I've realized is that I love you more than anything in the world. And I'm gonna do, you ready for the key phrase? Whatever it takes to be with you. That's repentance. But often we're not there. Here's the third thing we see in this, these verses. Repentance means submitting to consequences. So David says this, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David says, I'm repenting, God, and, and I, want your, I want you to be blameless. As judge, I want you to be justified. God, I'm not expecting you at all to cut me any slack because you are holy and you are righteous and you are just and God, I realize because you are just you're going to let justice flow. And God, I would rather be with you and justice be enacted on my life while I pray for grace and mercy, but I'd rather have your justice than not have you. That's repentance. That's whatever it takes. 1983, there was a guy, he was an American, He was on vacation in Australia and and God only knows why he would do something like this but he's in an art museum in Australia and there was a kind of priceless or really expensive boomerang there on display. Of course, 1983 didn't have the same kinds of security that we might have now. Somehow or another, he ends up getting that boomerang off of display, into his bag and gets home with it. 25 years later, he sends the boomerang back to the art museum with money to try to compensate for the loss. But here's the thing, with his name and his address. See, that's repentance. Sending the boomerang back with some money is confession. When he said, here's my name and here's my address and I'm willing to take the consequences, that's repentance, it was interesting, the mayor of the town, where the museum is, they, they interviewed him, and he said, they, they didn't press charges, they didn't do anything. They, they basically said, we, because of this, we realize that he is, they didn't use the word repentance, but that he is changed. Did you, get, you, you see, see though? He didn't have to. The police didn't find him. 25 years later, done. There might be, I don't even know, there might even be statute of limitations, I mean, he, he was living, scot-free, except he wasn't whole. He was a fake. It came to a point where he said, Man, I, and I don't know the backstory behind it, but I've got to get rid of this. I've got to send it back to where it's supposed to be because I want to be whole. And he invited consequences. And here, here's the big, invited consequences that were never coming. I mean, there were consequences, obviously, that he was living. The guilt and shame that made him, send it back, but he was inviting more consequences. Are you there? Is there something in your life that last week you've started confessing because we talked about it? You know, the last several days you've confessed but you feel like the guy on the black ice. You're just spinning, confess, 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 nothing changes because you haven't repented. Repented is whatever it takes to turn around. Let me, let me say this to you. I, and I know the vast majority of people in this room have made a decision at some point in their life to follow Christ. I realize that. I, w- I would guess in a room this size that we might have some people who never really did that. Maybe they prayed a prayer Youth camp when you were 13. Vacation Bible school. You got baptized afterwards. But if we were honest, you'd look back and say, you know what? There's never been a point in my life where I actually repented. Praying a prayer. Praying a prayer is an evangelical construct to salvation. Yeah, Scripture says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that's why we pray, for sure. And and on a Wednesday night, we'll we'll pray with students and invite them. But what you understand is it's it's not about a prayer and a magic trinket of words. Jesus didn't call anybody to pray a prayer. Jesus called people to follow him. He said, come follow me. Be a disciple. And to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, means you have to turn around from where you were going. That's never happened for you. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day that you go, man, I I want to nail down the fact that I'm following Jesus. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'll have a band to bring forward. We're not going to close our eyes and raise our hands, and then everybody to raise their hands, stand up, and the counselors will be in the back. We're not doing that. What I want you to hear is this. If you've never asked Jesus to save you, today is that day. And I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to take you through a, a prayed prayer. Because here's what happens. We'll pray a prayer, you can confess and you repent, and I'm afraid that you might just keep spinning. I'm going to ask you, with someone that you trust in your small group, or me or a pastor, if you go to eleven o'clock service, you can walk down front and find a pastor if you guys need to talk to somebody. But you just say, I need to talk about repenting from sin and trusting Christ. And we'll take that process from there. Let me let me let me tell you this though. And I'm gonna talk to believers in a second, and we're gonna be in our small group. There's parents in this room that may be believers still that need to repent. Or you may be a churchgoer and not following Christ. And right now, you know it. And you're in this internal battle of, am I going to talk to somebody? Am I gonna go up front? Because if I do, then everybody in my small group who thinks that I'm already a believer and have it all together, they're gonna know that I was a fraud. And my kids, that's the worst part of it. I've been telling my kids to follow Jesus for 15 years. And I've been making them come to church when they didn't wanna come. And now I've gotta look at them and go, hey, I just kind of discovered that I've been a churchgoer and haven't been following Jesus and that's all gonna change because I'm gonna repent and I'm gonna chase after Jesus. That's scary, that's huge. But if you don't do it, welcome to the world of being plastic. Pretending for your kids and your small group and your friends and your family that you're something that you're not. That's what you choose you're not getting it. If you are a believer, how do you know if repentance has happened in your life? Well, we talked about confessing over and over and over again. That would be a sign that's not. I want you to look at one more passage of Scripture. It's in James 5, 16. James tells us this. James is talking in, in the context of prayer and healing, but we're not taking the verse out of context because he gives us something that is, that is true in a biblical mandate. It just happens to find in that context, context of prayer and healing. In James 5 16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Now, that's discipleship 301 right there, moving towards 401. 401, discipleship 401, that's when you sell everything, go into the mission field, you know, discipleship 401. It's hard, difficult. God, I'll give you everything. of 301, right below that, is I have somebody that I'm walking with that I confess my sin to, not just to God, but they're walking with me in the world of repentance. If you don't have that person or those people, and hopefully that's what your small group can become or some people in your small group, you may not be walking in repentance. I'm saying you're not, but that would be a sign. Because if you're so scared to confess that you're broken to other broken people. You may be plastic and missing out on repenting. And you know why we want this? Why we want confession? Why we want repentance? Because we want what Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36, 26. And I'm gonna leave this up here rather than our bottom line. To pass passage scripture. God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone. I wish he had said plastic. It would have helped the series so much better. And i remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's God's desire for you. It's our church's desire for you. It's quite honestly, I would guess, what you desire for your own teenagers. So let's walk in it ourselves with confession and repentance.